This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from inspecting the reads and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. The standard line on Ronald Reagan's transition from Hollywood to Washington is that he was a mediocre actor and middling movie star who used his fundamental understanding of how to play to a camera to triumph in politics at the moment when televisual appeal became paramount. That's all true to some extent, but the story of how Reagan went from unemployed actor to leader of the free world is, as you might have expected, somewhat more complicated. Reagan's role in supporting the blacklist was a crucial influence on his transition from Democrat to Republican, and it also exposed him and made him expert in the processes of power. Today, we're going to track Reagan across the period when he was primarily known as a Hollywood performer, roughly 1940 to 1962. This period encompasses Reagan's most famous film roles, as well as his run as host of a weekly, highly rated TV series. It includes his marriage to Jane Wyman and their divorce, as well as his second marriage to the future Nancy Reagan. During this time, Reagan served as a high-ranking board member and then president of the Screen Actors Guild, under the auspices of which he testified before HUAC in 1947, and through which he made an unprecedented pact to help his agent end run around regulations designed to prevent conflicts of interest. And it's during these two decades that Reagan moves from the left side of the political spectrum to the right, a movement that was almost entirely motivated by his increasing obsession with communism. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist tale of Ronald Reagan.
Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Reagan's best-remembered film role, at least by Reagan, was as George Gipp, a football star who dies before the last big game in Newt Rockney, All-American, a 1940 biopic based on a great Notre Dame football coach. Reagan would believe that his participation in the film was something between fated and willed. He'd later claim that his sole ambition when he came to Hollywood from Iowa had been to tell the Newt Rockney story, and that from the moment he arrived in town, he told anyone who would listen that it ought to be a movie. Then one day, Reagan read in Variety that Warner Brothers had a Newt Rockney film in the works. When the producer auditioning him doubted that anyone would believe the slim Reagan as a football star, the actor rushed home to grab photos of his own days on the college football team. This was Reagan's big moment in the movie. He's on his deathbed, and he's speaking to Newt Rockney. Rock, someday when the team's up against it, the brakes are beating the boys, ask him to go in there with all they've got, win just one for the kipper. I don't know where I'll be then, but I'll know about it. I'll be happy. This movie came out the same year as Reagan's marriage to Jane Wyman. Jane would give birth to their first child in 1941. She had been in Hollywood for almost a decade at this point, but her resume for the first years of her career is a wasteland of roles like party guest, uncredited, and gold digger, uncredited. She wasn't given anything like a star vehicle until she was cast as the title character in the ninth and, as it turned out, last installment of the Torchy Blaine Girl Newspaper Reporter series. In her early years as Mrs. Reagan, Wyman had the kind of career that many women in her situation might have given up in order to concentrate on raising a family, particularly after Ronnie had a legit star-making hit in 1942 with the film King's Row, directed by Sam Wood, later the founder of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. King's Row is one film that most Reaganologists are well aware of because it gave Reagan the title for his first autobiography. Reagan's character gets into an accident and has his legs unnecessarily amputated by a vindictive doctor with a personal grudge. Reagan's character wakes up, looks down at where his legs are supposed to be, and calls to his girlfriend, Randy. Randy! Randy! Where's the rest of me? Randy! And yes, Ronald Reagan actually titled one of his autobiographies, Where's the Rest of Me? By the time King's Row was released, 
Pearl Harbor had happened, and Reagan, who was already a member of the reserves, awaited his orders. An article in Modern Screen Magazine, devoted to promoting the Reagan family's brave sacrifice, described Jane's recollection of Ronnie looking at a photograph of the corpses of Polish children and saying, This would make it a pleasure to kill. In the end, Reagan didn't get anywhere near killing anybody. When he was ordered to report for service shortly after finishing King's Row, Warner Brothers requested that his call-up be deferred because his call-up would constitute a financial hardship to the studio. This request was initially denied until Warner called in the help of William Guthrie, a disgraced FBI agent who is now employed by Jack Warner to get the military deferments he needed to keep his valuable actors working. Reagan was ultimately assigned to the Photographic Corps, where in a roundabout way, he helped to discover Marilyn Monroe, a story you can hear more of in our episode number 34. And throughout the war, Reagan continued to make movies and serve on the board of the Screen Actors Guild, where he rose through the ranks to be elected vice president just in time to make the strikes at Warner Brothers in 1945 and 1946 his responsibility. These strikes, as we've seen earlier in this series, were monumental for many members of the Hollywood community, creating literal battle lines and forcing most union members to take sides. But they were a particularly important moment in the career of Ronald Reagan, to the extent that Roy Brewer, who ran the union Yahtzee, which supported the studios against the supposedly communist-infiltrated strikers, took personal credit for Reagan's political transformation. Prior to the strikes, Reagan identified himself as a liberal Democrat, and Brewer lumped him in with, quote, honest people who were deceived by the leftists in their midst. Brewer makes it seem like Reagan could have swung either way. He could have chosen radical subversion, or he could have become a patriot. And it was because Brewer convinced Reagan to side with the Yahtzee, at least according to Brewer, that Reagan chose the side of Americanism and thus set himself on the path towards the presidency. Whatever Brewer's role was, under Reagan's leadership, the Screen Actors Guild did side with the Yahtzee, and it does seem to be because Reagan believed that the Conference of Studio Unions, led by Herb Sorrell, was striking as a way to disrupt business in Hollywood and further a communist agenda. As we've noted before in this series, Sorrell himself firmly denied ties to the Communist Party, but his group was trying to disrupt business as usual in Hollywood, because business as usual in Hollywood benefited the bosses in extreme disparity to the workers. But it's unlikely that Reagan was solely influenced by Brewer, because by the time he pushed SAG to reject a strike, which was supported by high-profile members such as Katherine Hepburn, Reagan was already working with the FBI. He was first visited at home by agents of the FBI in early 1946. As Reagan made the G-Men coffee, they told him that they knew for a fact that the guilds had been infiltrated by commies, and that these commies had bad-mouthed Reagan personally. Reagan's description of this meeting is odd, because it implies that Reagan was unaware that there were commies out to get him in his own union until the FBI told him about it. I must confess, Reagan wrote, they opened my eyes to a good many things. And then, according to Reagan, 
They asked if they could meet with me periodically to discuss some of the things that were going on in Hollywood. I said, of course they could. Reagan had popped up on the FBI's radar as an associate of potential subversives. Several liberal organizations that Reagan had joined during the war had been branded communist fronts. Groups like the American Veterans Committee, which in promoting issues like racial tolerance and regulation of atomic energy, was, according to the FBI, in complete conformity to that of the CP line. But the Bureau was aware that Reagan was not only not their enemy, but a potential ally. His college fraternity brother joined the FBI in 1941, and Reagan's brother, an advertising man, had also done some informing for the Bureau. Reagan was identified on classified FBI documents, made public in 1985, as Agent T-10. He was a very useful agent. He used information given to him by the FBI to disrupt and out communists within groups like the American Veterans Committee and the Hollywood Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts, Sciences, and Professions. He also began regularly sharing with the FBI the names of members of the Guild who he suspected of being communists or fellow travelers. Often Reagan's evidence as to these performers' political sympathies came solely from the fact that they had opposed his leadership in the Screen Actors Guild. Howard De Silva and Karen Morley, also named for the same reason by Robert Taylor, fell into this category, as did Anne Revere, the middle-aged character actress who by 1946 had been nominated for three Oscars for her work in The Song of Bernadette, National Velvet, and Gentleman's Agreement. So, in other words, Reagan was not just fingering potentially dangerous subversives. He was marking for removal his personal critics and rivals. This was not the only area where there was room for criticism when it came to Reagan's conduct as president of the Guild, which he became in March 1947. Reagan's agent, Lou Wasserman of MCA, had negotiated an historically profitable contract for his client. Reagan repaid the favor by brokering an historically suspect deal between the Screen Actors Guild and MCA, giving the agency a waiver from the Guild's usual prohibitions on conflict of interest, which allowed Wasserman to create a TV production company called Review. This company would in turn keep Reagan himself employed, as we'll see. Reagan's leadership of SAG was put to the test more immediately by the 1947 House Un-American Activities Committee's hearings on communism in Hollywood. Though Reagan's personal politics were in transition, and he had boldly opposed what he believed were communist positions within various groups and guilds, he was still considered a Democrat, and the Committee for the First Amendment believed there was a chance he'd join their side. Lester Cole, a screenwriter and a member of the Hollywood Ten, claimed that he had been sent to Reagan's house on behalf of Humphrey Bogart and William Wyler to ask Reagan to join their group. Jane Wyman answered the doorbell, and when Cole told her why he was there, Reagan's wife, according to Cole, became visibly uncomfortable. She said Ronnie wasn't feeling well, but that she'd ask if he'd see Cole. Wyman came back and said that her husband was too sick for a visitor, but that he'd think about joining the group and would let them know for sure the next day. But the Committee for the First Amendment never heard from him. 
That may be the really notable thing about Reagan's participation in the events that precipitated the blacklist. Behind the scenes, he was a virulent anti-communist who was working with the FBI to out suspected subversives. But publicly, he played as though he wasn't taking sides. Reagan was subpoenaed by HUAC in 1947 as a presumably friendly witness to represent the Screen Actors Guild, and Reagan's testimony was highly diplomatic. He used phrases like, make democracy work, when asked how to handle the subversive element in Hollywood. He said he detested communist ideas and tactics, but maintained that no political party should be outlawed on the basis of ideology alone. He acknowledged that SAG had a small clique that were known to practice the tactics that we associate with the Communist Party, but he said he didn't know if any of those members of that clique were actual communists, and he didn't name names. He didn't have to in public session because he had already told the FBI much of what he knew in private. In direct conversation or by allowing the release of private SAG files, Reagan gave to the FBI the names of over 50 actors and actresses to target as communists, many of whom were blacklisted. He did this while serving as president of the guild that was supposed to fight for the rights of its members to work. Reagan implied that his testimony before HUAC ended his marriage when he wrote, I arrived home from the Washington hearing to be told I was leaving. I suppose there had been warning signs, if only I hadn't been so busy. But small town boys grow up thinking only other people get divorced. Wyman added fuel to this fire by later noting that it was, quote, exasperating to wake in the middle of the night, prepare for work, and have someone at the breakfast table, newspaper in hand, expounding. Hedda Hopper put the blame for the divorce sort of on the fact that Jane and Ronnie's third child had died after being born premature, but really on the fact that Jane had gone back to work immediately after, playing a deaf mute in Johnny Belinda, for which she'd win an Oscar. Hedda tisk-tisked, Jane should never have started work on any picture as soon as she did after her family tragedy. And work may have been the real reason Ronald Reagan's first marriage fell apart. Ronnie was a very ambitious man who was never really able to get over the final hurdle as an actor or as a star. But in the late 1940s, he had found an identity in Hollywood politics, which would over the next few years evolve into politics politics. Meanwhile, Jane Wyman, at an age and life stage with a husband and two children, when many actresses probably would have eased off the screen, was just starting to show what she could do and earn recognition for it. And she apparently had no apologies for her success. Not many men in 1947 would have taken this gracefully when their own careers were hardly on fire. In 1949, Warners reduced Reagan's contract from two films a year to one. Post-divorce, he was living in an apartment at the Garden of Allah near the Macombo nightclub and dating regularly. He was at loose ends, and the feeling of importance he drew from being leader of SAG and a trusted source for the FBI became all that more important to him. When the studios began the activities that would coalesce into an effective blacklist, 
Reagan made an effort to publicly show a centrism that defied what he was doing with the FBI behind the scenes. At one point, he urged SAG to release a statement in disapproval of the studios, essentially discriminating in their hiring on the basis of personal beliefs. But the Guild decided such a statement would be too friendly to communists. By 1951, when HUAC returned for a second round of Hollywood hearings, Reagan's position on communists and suspected communists had shifted to one of zero tolerance. When actress Gail Sondergaard, who had won the first Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1936, asked for her union support when she decided to plead the fifth before HUAC, Reagan's FBI work and his SAG work were poised to come into conflict. Sondergaard had been subpoenaed, at least in part, due to information that Reagan himself had provided. He avoided the conflict by steering SAG, which had already begun requesting that members sign loyalty oaths, into an official policy which would allow it to turn its back on any member in a situation like Sondergaard's. SAG issued a statement in which it promised to, quote, fight against any secret blacklist created by any group of employers, while essentially excluding from the protections of the union any actor who, quote, has so offended American public opinion that he has made himself unsaleable at the box office. With this statement, Reagan and SAG were able to condone the blacklisting of actors while denying that any secret blacklist was actually occurring. Reagan's activities with SAG apparently weren't enough for him, and he began joining organizations through which he could do even more to tackle the communist threat with which he was now obsessed. One of those groups, the Motion Picture Industry Council, helped stars who had come under suspicion of subversion by helping them to clear their names. Often this meant encouraging them to sanctify their own reputations by testifying before HUAC and giving information to the FBI. Reagan had established such a reputation in this field that in 1949, when director Mervyn Leroy began working with a 28-year-old actress named Nancy Davis, who had ended up on a list of suspects, Leroy called Reagan for help. Nancy had no idea how she had ended up under a cloud of suspicion, given that she was violently opposed to leftism. Reagan investigated the matter and concluded that Nancy Davis was not a commie. He went to her house to tell her the good news, and then took her out to dinner to discuss how she could clear her false reputation as a bleeding heart. In March 1952, Ronnie made Nancy his second wife. The marriage to Nancy, who was a dedicated Republican whose social circle was centered in old money Pasadena, was the final piece of Reagan's political conversion puzzle. Ironically, the only film in which Ronnie and Nancy would star together was Hellcats of the Navy, the script of which was secretly rewritten by blacklisted screenwriter Bernard Gordon. Nancy and Ronnie didn't know about Gordon's work on the film, and Gordon didn't know at the time about the role Reagan had played in allowing the blacklist to happen. Nancy would soon thereafter retire from acting to put all of her energy into raising her and Ronnie's two kids and into supporting her husband's career. That career on movie screens was slowing down, but before it rolled to a stop, Reagan managed to get cast as the male hero in Hollywood's first film about citizens pressured to inform on their peers. 
storm warning, starred Reagan as the DA of a small town in which the KKK commits a murder. Everyone in the town knows the Klan is responsible, but they're so powerful locally that everyone is afraid to speak up. But Ginger Rogers, a fashion model in town for one night to visit her sister, witnessed the murder, and she's dying to finger the culprits, until she realizes that one of the hooded killers is her sister's new husband. It's Reagan's job to convince the townspeople, and then Ginger, to identify the criminals amongst them. Production of Storm Warning was announced in 1948, but the film was not released until 1951, when HUAC was gearing up for their second round of hearings, which would be all about asking members of the Hollywood community to inform on one another. In that context, Storm Warning is pretty hateful in the way that it completely whitewashes the racial element of the Klan and uses them pretty transparently as a stand-in for what opponents believed of communists that they were an enemy pretending to be neighbors, hiding in plain sight. In 1953, Ronald Reagan stepped down from the board of SAG, and a year later, with his prospects dim after a misbegotten stab at a Las Vegas casino act, Reagan signed to become the corporate spokesman for General Electric. This was a deal brokered for Reagan by Lou Wasserman, and it wouldn't have been possible had Reagan not pushed SAG to issue that waiver to Wasserman's MCA to allow the agency to get into the business of television production. Reagan's job with GE included his hosting and supervising of a weekly TV show called General Electric Theater, which was a Sunday night dramatic anthology, often featuring top flight guest stars. Reagan usually didn't act on the show. He introduced the segments and signed off to an ad from his employer, turning Reagan into a literal bridge between Hollywood and corporate America. Good evening. I'm Ronald Reagan speaking for General Electric. Tonight, it is my great pleasure to appear on the General Electric Theater. In research. In engineering in manufacturing skills at General Electric. Progress is our most important product. Of course, the very existence of the show was evidence that Hollywood was an extension of corporate America. And if Reagan and Wasserman's backroom dealings were any indication, Hollywood was potentially even more corrupt. Thanks to the waiver secured by Reagan, MCA soon dominated television production. By the end of the decade, the agency took a profit on nearly half of all evening TV shows. The Reagan family house was transformed into a show palace for all of GE's new products, including multiple TVs, fridges and ovens, colored lights and intercoms in every room. In commercials, Ronnie was shown telling his daughter that all of GE's gadgets were going to make her mother's work easier. It was the ultimate 50s example of consumerism being sold to the typical family as the road to the future. Ronald Reagan didn't get to spend much time in this magical future home because GE had him on constant road trips. He toured factories and gave speeches to employees, selling GE's futurist philosophy. He was doing the work of a politician, and in the process, he realized that his politics had fully changed. He could not accurately call himself a Democrat any longer. This realization perhaps emboldened Reagan to bring his personal politics into his work. 
1959, at a GE executive's conclave in New York. He gave the first version of what would become a famous Reagan speech, in which he directly conflated the American government's expanded reach into its citizens' lives with communism, and gave examples from his own fight against, as he put it, quote, the attempted takeover of the film industry by the communists. These personal anecdotes were what Reagan called the most dramatic part of his pitch. In other words, on the corporate campaign trail, he used his role in the blacklist for dramatic effect. As late as 1959, Reagan was still reporting to the FBI anyone he encountered who aroused his suspicions. At a party in May 1959, Reagan had a conversation with an actress named Judith Braun, who casually mentioned that she thought the blacklist was unfair. Reagan said there was no blacklist, but he noted that if denying work to anyone who opposed the U.S.'s involvement in the Korean War constituted a blacklist, then he'd support it. Director Lewis Milestone, a member of the Unfriendly 19, was also at the party, and Braun pointed him out and noted that he hadn't worked in a while. In fact, Milestone had made films in England and Europe, as many who were blacklisted did in order to support their families, but he had not been hired to work on a Hollywood film since 1953. Just then, Nancy came over to rescue Ronnie. How dare you question my husband, Nancy said to Braun as she dragged her husband away. After the party, Reagan gave Judith Braun's name and address to the FBI with the note that he was worried that she might be a bad influence. It's unclear whether or not Braun was blacklisted as a result of this. Her IMDb page shows just two roles after her encounter with Reagan, but her retirement may have had more to do with her 1961 marriage to screenwriter Walter Bernstein, who was himself blacklisted and who later wrote the blacklist comedy The Front. Reagan gave another version of his standard speech in 1962 in a paid television address in which he endorsed Richard Nixon in the race for governor of California. That same year, Reagan officially changed political parties. 1962 was also the year that GE dropped Reagan from his contract after eight years of service. Reagan would later claim that President Kennedy had pulled strings to oust him in protest of Reagan's increasingly conservative politics. Reagan told people that GE had asked him to tone down his political rhetoric, and when he wouldn't, they fired him. GE said politics had nothing to do with it, and they offered to replace all of the appliances in his home with new models as a parting gift. This was fairly generous of them, given that Reagan was in the midst of a budding scandal at the time that was to potentially tarnish the seeds of his relationship with GE. A month before GE cut ties with Reagan, he was called to testify before a grand jury in an investigation led by Attorney General Robert Kennedy into MCA. The talent agency had become a culture-dominating monopoly, and it had gotten there, it seemed, thanks to that SAG waiver secured by Ronald Reagan. Kennedy was looking for evidence that Reagan had been bribed to give special treatment to his agency. On the stand, Reagan's memory suddenly went blank. 
he could not recall a single detail of his participation in the waiver process. There were no consequences of the grand jury investigation for Reagan, unless losing his job counts. But SAG was named a co-conspirator of MCA in a civil antitrust suit. And in settling, Wasserman dissolved his talent agency, but kept the ability to produce and distribute all manner of entertainment products. Four years earlier, MCA had bought the Universal Studios lot, which they leased back to the Universal Pictures production company. Now, in 1962, MCA was able to fully take Universal over, creating a much more powerful full-scale entertainment company, while the former MCA agents simply started new agencies through which to funnel talent into MCA Universal Productions. One former MCA executive, Taft Schreiber, went into Republican politics. Within a few years, Schreiber was co-chairing Ronald Reagan's campaign for governor of California. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our editor is Henry Malofsky. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can tweet at us. Our handle is at rememberthispod. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts and rate and review us too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.